Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, channel pros. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's summertime in the Northern Hemisphere, at least. Lots of great things happening in the summer. The Tour de France is in full swing. They head into the Alps tomorrow. I love watching the tour. I don't know if there are any other Tour de France or cycling fans out there, but I'm loving the excitement. And welcome. Welcome to episode 30 of the Channel Journeys podcast, sponsored by Channel Journeys. This is Rob Spee. I'm the founder of Channel Journeys, and I help SaaS companies create innovative channel programs to scale faster. Well, today's guest, she knows more than a thing or two about partner programs. Sandra Glazer is the global VP of channel sales at Sienna, and she's had channel leadership roles at many big brands, including Brocade, VMware, even Amazon. And I saw Sandra give an awesome presentation at the Channel Focus event a few months ago called, Is Your Partner Program Keeping Up With The Times? So I invited her to join us on Channel Journeys to talk about partner programs, and we talk about why they are not keeping up, and she tells us about a new personalized partner program that she and her team have launched at Sienna. So we have a ton, a ton of great content here for anyone that is building or managing or thinking about building a channel partner program. Let's jump right in with Sandra. Here we go. Hey, Sandra, good morning. It's still morning there where you are, right? It sure is. And where are you today? I am in sunny California in the Bay Area. All right. Well, good morning in sunny California. Great to have you on the Channel Journeys podcast, finally. Delighted to be here. Awesome. Well, we chatted a bit before this, and I love chatting with you. You've got so many great insights, and I love seeing what you're doing. And you've been doing some really innovative things around partner programs that I want to talk about today. And I saw you present on this, where was it? Out at Channel Focus in Carlsbad. That's right. But before we dive into that, I've got a curveball question for you. You ready? I think so. (laughs) All right. So we all use LinkedIn and we like to look at LinkedIn profiles. But what's one thing about Sandra Glazer that folks would not know by looking at your LinkedIn profile? I'd say that probably that I have passions and interests besides the channel. Things like I'm a mom. I love to cook. Not only that, I love to eat, garden, travel. But then again, that's LinkedIn. So if you were maybe my Facebook friend, you would know these things about me. (laughs) I'm not a big Facebook user, I got to admit. Yeah, that's a challenge depending on what generation we come from. Well, it's funny. I've got a ton of high school friends. I grew up in Seattle. All my high school buddies, not all of them, but a big chunk of my group are big Facebook users. So at least I can kind of keep track of what they're doing, even though I live across the country. So you said you like to travel. You're not from, you didn't grow up in California. I did not. I grew up internationally. So I lived a good part of my life in Central America and South America, and then later on in Europe for a short time, and then across a handful of states in the United States. Well, you've been all over. And I do want to dive in, maybe towards the second half of the show, we can dive in a little bit about your channel journey and how you got there. My favorite topic. Your favorite topic? Good, good. Mine too. But my second favorite topic is partner programs. So 
Let's dive into that. I've had a lot of folks on this podcast. We've been talking about all the changes taking place in the channel. You know, partners are changing, business models are changing, but what's happening with partner programs? And I think the title of your presentation was that partner programs or is your partner program keeping up with the times? Why do you think they're not? What is it about partner programs that you think is is perhaps getting stale in the in the current market? I think if you look at partner programs historically, we all started in this industry with a more homogenous partner ecosystem than what we have today. And we've tried to evolve our programs by developing things like competencies and specializations. And as our portfolios as vendors expanded into the cloud or in SaaS models, if you were a hardware centric a vendor, we have what I call, we have bolt-ons <laughs> to the program where we've kept yeah. the core infrastructure the same. And so what we've done is we've created very complex programs where we look at it very internally as to what our program looks like, but we're not looking at the complexity for a partner who has you know, 5, 10, 20 different vendors doing the same thing to their partner programs. And we've created a very complex way of navigating. I'll give an example. Early on, I worked for a company where we built out competencies that we were going to require our partners to have to remain at the highest elite level of our partner program. And we looked at it very internally where we were expanding our solution sets and we needed our partners to come on that journey with us. And we required them to have two of these competencies to retain their elite status. And that backfired on us because they weren't ready to go on that journey with us at that time. And so they were questioning, I was really valuable to you yesterday and today I'm not. And so we had to backpedal a little bit on those requirements. I think these are the things you learn as you you go along. You know, that was probably five years ago, but that that was one incident. And I still see that today, Sandra. Still a lot of programs, I think, have those competencies and specializations. And for the partners, it's like playing a game of Twister with, with all their different vendors. And you think about this too. You asked about why partner programs aren't keeping up with the times. Well, not only are we introducing new partner types into our ecosystems, but our existing partners are evolving and they have multiple business models. So it gets really complicated where if you are a traditional solution provider, VARSI, and you're say, you know, diamond status in a program, but you also have an MSP business and that competency puts you at a, a tier two or tier one in the program where you yeah. start getting very complex of how valuable am I holistically to the vendor because I'm in all these different parts of a partner program or I'm in different partner programs because of my evolving business models. I've been guilty of that too. I think we've tried to put partners in buckets. Are you a reseller? Are you a services partner? Are you a referral partner? But it's all bundled together. Partners, like you said, they have multiple business models and they want to engage in different ways depending on the situation. Agreed. Agreed. They can be all of the above now and many are. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And the other thing I've seen too, is you talk about the partner program with all these bolt-ons. We also see with as new business models evolved, they had their classic partner program. Then they introduced the cloud partner program, then maybe a developer partner program, then maybe an affiliate or referral partner program. So now you've got a company with, you know, three classic tiers across, you know, 10 different partner programs and talk about complexity. So a partner who has all those different business models and wants to engage in different ways has to engage with all your different partner programs and meet each of their requirements. And you know, one thing that you're challenged with too, and I'm getting a little bit off topic here, is when you log into a partner portal, you are profiled. And some of these mm-hmm. tools don't recognize that. And you, you know, how do you navigate, you know, what's your personal experience when you get onto the partner portals too, around I am, you know, all these different business models. Yeah, it's a challenge for sure. That and we've seen this, you know, ongoing for years now. Well, yeah, technology's ability and our channel technology's ability to keep up with this is a probably a topic for a whole nother podcast. Absolutely. So talking about changes in the channel, we have new business models coming out, new partner types coming out. What else are you seeing and what all is driving all of these changes that are taking place? Well, at the end of the day, every business needs to make money and they want to grow. And so when we look at the channel evolution, we've got a lot of partners who are making their money on recurring revenue or services. And that sometimes was an afterthought with some of the programs or it, it was mm-hmm. a point of conflict honestly, with some companies where who does the professional services, the partner, or do we do it? So I think the changes that I'm seeing is we need to look holistically at the channel around what is it that you're looking for to grow your business. And one of the things that I'm finding is enablement is more important than, uh, than the revenue piece of it. And that sounds kind of strange because they, you know, partners need to grow and we need to facilitate growth. But when you look at how partners make their money, their highest profitability, highest margin piece of their business is services. And if we can enable Mm -hmm. them to do that versus giving a rebate or some sort of financial incentive around the sale, that's one change that I am, I am seeing in spades is enablement in many cases is becoming more important than the financial incentive. And let me ask you, enablement can mean a number of different things. Are you specifically talking about technical training for the partner to do a better job and expand their service offerings? No, that's one piece of it. So one of the things that we've done at Sienna is we've taken a more holistic view at what does enablement mean? Typically it's been sales and technical training for partners. But some of the unique things that we're doing are working with market and industry analysts and providing their services to our partners to help drive insights into how they can grow. We give them, you know, one-on-one, this is at the very top level of our program, but they one-on-one time with these analysts. That's just one little area that we're looking at. We also have ways that we enable our partners to monetize their business through services development and, and consulting around that. So we can help consult to their customers or we can consult to the partners and then we can enable them to build their own 
consulting practices with methodologies around monetizing the infrastructure that their customers have bought through services development that help their customers grow. I want to go back to the what you mentioned about the analysts. That's an interesting one that I haven't heard of before. So your partners, your top partners are getting access, what, to like a Gartner or maybe IDC type firm? Yes, we have you know, probably six or seven different firms that we work with. And because that depends on what your business mm-hmm. is. Some firms specialize. Yep. Now, remember, Sienna has you know a different solution set depending on who the customer is. So we deal with tier one service providers. We have in our enterprise space, it's very vertically focused. So particular analyst or or consulting firm that we may work with may have a a deep specialization in a particular vertical market, for example. And some are broad, some are very specialized and specific. And is it typically like the CEO, the owner of the partner firm or what folks would be leveraging those analyst contacts? It all depends on what our business plan says. So we'll get into what's different about my program in a moment, but it's all business plan driven. And so when we look at the outcomes okay. that we are looking to achieve, that's when we'll start engaging. Do we need help here? Where would it benefit us, et cetera, with each of the different analysts or, or consulting firms we have available? Okay. Well, I love your new partner program and I want to talk about it. But first, let's take a look at your old partner program or, or other kind of classic partner programs. You've, you and I have both worked with a lot of the classic partner programs. We've rolled them out ourselves. What's wrong with that old thinking, the way the current, a lot of current programs are structured? Well, we touched on that a bit earlier about our more homogeneous partner ecosystem. Years ago, I worked in consulting. And what was interesting about partner programs and one of the most lucrative parts of my business was benchmarking. Everyone wanted to know mm-hmm. what everyone else was doing in their program. And years ago, you know, Cisco was kind of the gold standard and others. And, and what I would see in those engagements is not a lot of original thinking around. It was more keeping up with the Joneses or maybe how can we take a small step forward to differentiate ourselves? And what I think, and to be fair, those programs were right for then. You know, we had a homogeneous environment of partner of resale partners, for example, right? But what we do have now are partners who don't resell, partners who influence, partners who consult, partners who are cloud services, partners, MSPs. It's just our ecosystem has expanded and our traditional partners, many of them have evolved and many of them haven't. And depending on what business you're in, you're still straddling the old program and its efficacy to what you need to do today. And I think that's what kind of led to those bolt-on programs that we're talking about. So I wouldn't say what was wrong with them. I think what is wrong is not looking at how you need to evolve. So when I Mm -hmm. look at the program that I inherited when I joined Sienna, I straight away saw that the enablement that we provided did not truly enable our partners in the way that we needed them to grow and enable them to be successful. It was a little bit more old school 
and it just needed to be modernized. I, I'm sitting here wondering, are there like three signs your partner program might be out of date? So you mentioned one enablement. Were there other kind of telltale factors? Like, hey, if my business is starting, if my channel business is shrinking, that's probably one pretty obvious factor. You got to do yeah. something well, different. Fortunately, our, our channel business wasn't shrinking. Was, but I, I would say, for example, my MDF program was an accrual-based program that was an entitlement-based program. So that was a little old school. Many other companies, most companies had moved away from that model over the years. But with my particular program, it was still kind of stuck in the 90s in, in that respect. I would say if you looked at, it's what I call a data sheet program. When you mm -hmm. look at it on the data yeah. sheet and it all looks really good. You've hit all the marks. But when you start looking under the covers and talking to your partners and assessing the success that you've had. And is it the program that drove the success or are there other factors that drove the success? And I think that that's a really important piece of assessing whether you need a program, a new program or not. And that is, you know, look at the data and talk to your partners, understand where they're going with their businesses and don't make any assumptions based on the past around your, your new programs. Well, let's dive in then. Let's talk about your new partner program. Did you give it a catchy name? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> why. Okay. So a catchy name is not a requirement I'll for success. Why. <laughs> it's because this is ever evolving right now. I built a new platform and program that can stand, you know, disruption. And so I did not want it to get tagged with a name. What we have is the Sienna Partner Network, which many companies have. And I think that that's, you know, a great, we are evolving our ecosystem to include more partner types and differentiated partner types. So we wanted to make sure that it was reflective of our whole network of partners that we will be evolving towards. And you can handle the whole network of all these different partner types with one program? One program, one platform, one any new partner type that comes into the our model, this new approach that we have, we don't have to change our program. So tell us how that's possible. Took a lot of work to get here. So I'll share with you. What we did was took an approach much like you would take an alliance approach. Now, to be fair, I've got a smaller partner ecosystem than I've had in years past with other companies. So I was able to do mm -hmm. this and I do believe it can scale for larger partner ecosystems, but I had the luxury of working with a, a smaller partner base than I'm used to working with. So what we did was we made the foundation of the program business planning. In that business plan, there are three elements that we look at. The financial and business growth goals. And then we take a very personalized approach. You asked me if I had a name to my program. I don't, but I do have a tagline. And that is at, at Sienna right, Partnering is Personal. And what I learned, and I'm right. going to take a detour here for a moment. What I learned through the assessment that I did was that our partners were, it was really important for them to be Sienna partners. And they were willing to overlook our inefficiencies to be a Sienna partner. And that's where I believe that our program mm -hmm. failed them. And so with this new program, getting back to the business plan, 
once we define what our our goals are, and this is not necessarily a 12-month goal, we can do three-year, five-year planning, but we chunk it out in 12-month periods on the business plan. We deal with large deals that could take one to two years to close. So we want to look at what's our overall three-year plan and what are we going to do 12 months of the time to get there. And so once you define your financial and business goals, we look at that and we create customized, personalized enablement plans for our partners. And this goes beyond what we just talked about around training and enablement from a sales and technical standpoint. So now what's very different about our program is we don't have an approach that says you have to take XXX technical certifications or sales certifications to be a premier partner at Sienna. Everyone used to have to take the same training to be a premier partner. Now what we have is Mm -hmm. personalized enablement plans that every partner for all intents and purposes now has their own unique personalized program. And so all the training and the enablement that we define to achieve those goals become the requirement of the program for the partners. So that's how you've customized the program to each partner through the business plan. Correct. And then the third part of the business plan is the market development plan. And this is where we are driving a more efficient use of our MDF and other resources around how we drive demand in the market or develop, you know, business development in the market. So the third piece requires a proposal around what are the things that we're going to do that are aligned to the goals of the business plan in order to see a holistic picture around what we aim to achieve in that 12-month period. And so the MDF is customized. It's not an entitlement anymore. It's customized to the plan and what they want to accomplish. That's right. And one of the differences here too is I very closely aligned the final approval of MDF to the quota carrying side of the business. Because at the end of the day, if you own that number, what this creates is a, a tighter alignment between channel marketing and field sales because you know, channel marketing will work with field sales to develop the proposal that is aligned to the business goals that the field sales folks worked on together with the partner. So we're seeing a much tighter alignment to the activities and the, uh, the way we work together on, holistically on the business plan. That's awesome. So marketing can't just go ahead and approve something without field sales approval as well. That's right. That is really good. That That's great for driving that alignment. So you mentioned kind of platinum levels and that type of thing. You are moving away from tiers. Is that right? Well, that was my intent. But when you're driving change in a company, you really have to listen to your customers too. And this is one of those, this is one of those sticking points where the field really felt that it was important to keep tiers. Mm-hmm. I think eventually we will eliminate tiers, but we did go from four tiers down to two. <laughs> so it was a compromise. But in my opinion, I think that there is a time and place for tiers. And I think that I think we're going to see an evolution there. I'm I've taken kind of my baby step there around tiers. I do have two. <laughs> and and I'll tell yeah. you why sometimes it's it's important. You can't, folks listening to this podcast may think, well, how can you have 
a personalized program per partner when Robinson Patman requires us to treat all partners alike. So yeah, that's the old sticking one that legal loves to pull in. And so one of the ways we were able to get around that, and we're not getting around it, we do have some kind of low barriers to entry. And so we do have two tiers for partners and we do have some minimal required training in the program. You can't just eliminate that with because otherwise you are by in violation of Robinson Patman. So we do the tiers helps with that in my opinion. Yeah, you have to have so you have the same minimum requirements for all partners. Do you have to have the same benefits for all partners? You don't. You don't. So let me step back to the tiers. So most of us have the 80-20, the 90-10 rule. And this is where I said, I think this can be scalable for ecosystems that are larger. So what my two tiers gives me is a differentiation between the partners that drive 90% of my business and the long tail. And if you take a look at your you know, top performing partners, all of a sudden, we all have a much smaller partner ecosystem than inclusive of the long tail. And this is why a more personalized approach mm-hmm. can be done with a longer, with folks that have bigger ecosystems. And so as long as you're treating like partners alike within that business plan, and because we're no longer, I don't have any rebates right now either. So the only contra revenue incentive program that I have is MDF and it's proposal based. And your allocation of MDF is now based on the strength of your proposal and the investment you're making into driving Mm -hmm. the goals or alignment to the goals. Yeah. Not based on your tier or your revenue. That's right. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of rewarding partners for doing the right thing. And you can design your business planning process and how you support them through enable enablement and things like MDF to reward them for doing those things. And it shouldn't be a factor of how big they are. Oh, agreed. I think we're, we're seeing that, you know, over and over again now with influence partners, you know, we're getting into, we have some new partners that are taking components of our software and in building that with five other vendors solutions in a traditional, say, MSP offering, but targeted at a very niche space. It might be retail branches, for example, not just retail, but retail branches. So that's a really cool offering. And they have their own swim lane. And there's no one else doing what they're doing. Why wouldn't you want to reward that? Well, and you mentioned influencers. I think that's another interesting one that more and more people are talking about and recognizing that in the the buyer's journey, there are different people touching or that partner or that buyer's reaching out and getting influenced by different people who we've never thought of as part of our channel. And the challenge is finding them. And then how do you engage them and motivate them? Do you see your program, kind of your business planning process as as a way to facilitate that? It can be. That's on my list of to-dos right now. We are exploring how we evolve our influencer approach because we have so many different kinds of influencers. It can be a consultant. It can be a, an Accenture that happens to be in a, in an account. It can be an agent. Many of our customers are service providers. So it could be their indirect channels that are influencing 
There's just so many different kinds of influencers. This is my next thing that I'm working on. I have a couple of pilots that we haven't launched yet, so I haven't can't really talk about them yet, but we're playing around with how do we, you know, what what's the lever for consultants? It might just be access. They don't really care so much about yeah. monetary rewards, but can I get access? to your technical folks when I need to, or to content that will help me be better at my role. So this is a really big piece of where we're evolving to. Yes, business planning for some of those influencers, but maybe not so much for others. Yeah. Well, I'm doing a podcast next month on the influencer channel. So be sure to listen to that one. I will. All right. So I think we've talked a lot about what you're doing differently with your new program. We talked about even some of the things to look out for that maybe it's signs that your program is is getting a little bit worn out or needs to be modernized. What are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing in executing your new program? Any surprises as you've rolled it out? I will say really start with a strong vision because if your vision is strong, people will line up behind you. And when you're executing what... Mm -hmm. I took a whole new approach. So driving change is hard. I will say our partners embraced it wholeheartedly, but my bigger challenge was internal and making sure that everyone understood the vision and got behind you. And I think we did, if I'm going to puff my own chest for a moment, a really good job in planning out the rollout. And we started with a new approach to internal communications. We started a internal newsletter. We did monthly all hands internal calls and we had a six month rollout plan. So in the first six months, in the first parts, it was more about buying into the vision. Why change? What's driving the change? Getting people to really understand what's going on in the industry and what, why it's forcing us to think differently. And then that was followed up with, here's the new framework of what you can expect. And then that was followed up with, here's actually what the new program looks like. And then that was followed up with what's expected of you in the program. And not only did we do some of these more traditional communications like newsletters and all hands webinars, but we did boot camps and we made our team available for office hours. So we put them, put this on everyone's mm. in the whole field organizations, 1700 people's calendars. Show up if you have questions. The doctor is in kind of approach. Right. And so we did brain sharks on top of it. We launched an internal SharePoint site specific to the launch. So I feel like we didn't leave anything to chance because driving change is hard. And so looking back, I think that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of is the approach that we took to the internal journey we wanted the field to go on with us and how we enabled that. Yeah, that's a very well thought out plan. Very cool. So what was the vision that you created and, and are getting in people's minds as you rolled us out? Well, the vision was one that many other companies have been challenged with prior uh, before Sienna. Our solution sets have been largely protected by virtualization. 
we, we deal in optical networking yeah. and you can't virtualize photons, right? So we haven't had the same challenges that other companies have had around virtualization changing the business, particularly when you, when you have a hardware dominant solution set. But that doesn't mean we're immune mm-hmm. to the digital disruption and to the cloud. And so the, you know, it had to be about how technology is changing and the impact that it's having on the partner ecosystem and the impact that it will have to Sienna as we become more software defined and as we have more cloud solutions. So it was really that vision that many others have had to go through prior to Sienna having to go to through on that. It was also about being taking what Sienna was so good at. Partners love Sienna. And a lot of it has to do with the personal relationships that we have. And I wanted to capitalize on mm-hmm. that secret sauce of ours. And my big aha mm-hmm. moment on this was in doing my assessment, part of my assessment was doing a, a partner survey. And I threw in some questions that I knew what the answers would be because I needed to validate <laughs> some of the changes. I was making. And yeah. one of the questions was, I won't go into the question, but on a scale of one to five, mm-hmm. one being the worst and five being the best, the question asked partners about how how we provided tools and resources for them to do something. And I knew we did not provide those tools and resources yeah. at all. What answer were you expecting? I was expecting a one. Because this is a big, this is a big pain point. This is a big pain point <laughs> that we have, and I need it to yep. validate that. You know, yeah. And I, we got a five, and I'm sitting here scratching my head, going, "What?" <laughs> I was so careful about how I worded that question, and that was where the light bulb went off for me. Was that our partners, our personal approach to partnering, and the care that we have for our partners? Our partners were able or were willing to overlook our operational efficiency inefficiencies because the relationship was so important. Yeah. So for me, when executing that new program, partnering is personal. I wanted to capitalize on like that's so different about Sienna is the way that we personally care and are engaged around the success of each and every partner. Is that a cultural trait of the company, do you think, even just internally? Absolutely. Sienna has an amazing culture. And one thing I joke about when people ask me, like, why is it, what's so different about Sienna? It's from the top down, it's about getting the people right. If you hear our CEO, Gary Smith, speak, he always talks about if you get the people right, the technology will follow. And Sienna does have this very special and unique culture. Again, when I talk about if you get the vision right, everyone will say, how can I help or or roll up their sleeves? And it, that is what's so unique about our culture. And I think that that bleeds over into how we have our partner relationships. Yeah. And I, we talked about this on a prior podcast. and It was about the importance of aligning the culture of your partners and the culture of your program to the culture of the company, that that all has to fit together. I started to mention when people ask me what's different, I jokingly, tongue in cheek, say, well, you know how you go into the coffee room 
and you see the posters and the table tents telling you what your company's culture is, we don't need that at Sienna. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a problem when you got to have a sign telling you what your culture is. That's funny. Well, that is really cool. You are doing some awesome stuff. We've got a few minutes left. Let's jump into your kind of personal or professional journey and how you got into the channels in the first place. It's quite by accident. <laughs> so I accidentally got in the channel. What was your accident? Let's see. In my early 20s, right, probably a year out of school, I was living in Miami, Florida. That's where my family was. And I, you know, having gone to school in Europe, I had this vision that I would go live in Europe, but you can't just pick up and move without a job. And so I thought, well, you know, New York City is probably the closest experience to what I'm looking for in Europe. And I was working in a, a printing company, working with ad agencies, and I really enjoyed that. And I thought, well, maybe a career in advertising would be something I'd enjoy. And if, if I'm going to be in advertising, why don't I just move to New York City and give it a shot? So I worked all day and I would waitress at night for about a year and a half. And I saved as much money as I could. And I just picked up and I moved to New York City without a job, without knowing what I'd be doing. But I had a bank account and I had a dream. I got there and I was fortunate enough that I did have a friend whose mother worked in the industry. And she set me up with a lot of ad agencies interviews or introduced me. So I had this great opportunity and I was getting all these job offers, but I was also looking for apartments at the time. And I started doing the math and realized that an entry level role in advertising would mean that I would have to waitress at night the rest of my life. <laughs> and so I, I met someone who said, you know, you should come interview with me. And this was a, global solution provider, you know, down on Wall Street, I have a sales office, you know, come interview. And I really did not want to do this, but he was a friend of a friend. And I was like, fine, I'll go on the interview, but I'm not working for this company. I'm going to work in advertising. And then they offered me a job making exponentially more <laughs> than advertising. And so that's how I ended up <laughs> in technology in New York City. And it's been, yeah, it's been fantastic. I ended up in a, in a sales role, working for a solution provider. And then I ended up focusing on the vertical market, which was media and advertising. So I had a lot of advertising clients. So I kind of got to fill my <laughs> desire that way. <laughs> That's awesome. How long did you stay in New York City? I lived there for nine years. So after, because I had a lot of advertising clients, one of them said, hey, you know, Adobe's looking for a channel account manager role, and I think you'd be great for it. And so I moved over to the vendor side and started off in my career in, you know, in channel sales with Adobe there. And I was promoted yeah. and relocated to the Bay Area after a few years there. Wow. Very cool. So you went from sleepless in New York to global channel chief. It's been a fun ride. <laughs> that is a great story. So speaking of fun rides, any other favorite adventures that you've been on in your career or in the, your lifetime? I don't know if I would call it an adventure, but you know, having grown up internationally and I love having global roles, you know, being part of a, a global community and 
knowing the differences between our cultures. I think one of my most favorite things about what I do is being able to introduce my kids to the globe and travel together. And sometimes I take advantage of the fact that I'm traveling for work and they can come along or that their interest is piqued based on all of my experiences in a global role. I'm developing a bunch of really eager jet setters and travelers around the world. And I I really love that I can introduce my kids to different ways of thinking and different parts of the world. They've been to places like Vietnam, Berlin, Amsterdam, the usual big cities in Europe. My second daughter is taking a gap year before she starts college. And I think we're going to try to go to Latin America and check out Patagonia. Wow, that's very cool. That's such a neat thing to do, to, to get your kids introduced to it and excited about the globe and all the fun things that you can do and different people and places to see. That's really cool. I agree. Well, Senator, it's been great fun chatting with you. We covered a lot of ground. Anything that I didn't ask you that I should have about channel programs or any other topic? I think that there's so much we can talk about, Rob, that we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> I think you're right. We could go on for hours. All right. But our podcast listeners are probably finished their workout. They got to get to work or, or whatever they're doing. Their, their drive is done. Let's give them a break. And thank you so much, Senator. It's been a great fun chatting with you. It's been great fun. Thanks for the opportunity. You're very welcome. All right, guys. Isn't Sandra fantastic? She is passionate about the channel and her partners, and she shared so much insight on partner programs that we can all leverage. Thank you again, Sandra. Lots of things to think about. Is your current program really benefiting your partners in today's environment? Is MDF an entitlement, or is it given based on the merits of your partner's proposal? And I really love the idea of building your program on the foundation of a joint business plan. That's something that I started executing when I was at SAS. It's hugely important in getting alignment and accountability with your partners. Check out all the key takeaways and resource links at channeljourneys.com backslash CJ30. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, share Channel Journeys with them. And leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. That would be fantastic. Be sure to join me next week for a conversation with Hope Galley of Cisco. We talk about leveraging partners for customer success, and it is a great episode. Until then, have yourself an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, Please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.